Last week, as uh, Ben preached, we were reminded um, of the pervasiveness of sin and how God judged the world through sending a, um, uh, a flood over all of the world. I was amused a bit by the, the little picture of Noah's Ark that, that Ben uh, put up, fairly typical of children's storybooks. Whereas if you actually look at the dimensions of the ark in the Bible, it's about as big as a football field and very high and very stable. We continue uh, reading on in Genesis today. Uh, In Genesis 9 and 10, we see a list of Noah's descendants. And then we continue reading now from Genesis 10, starting at verse 32. So if you have your Bibles, or if you'd like a Bible, raise your hand and one of our host team will bring one. Okay, so Genesis 10, reading from verse 32. These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies in their nations. And from these, the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. Now the whole earth had one language, and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have one, all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. We'll continue reading from Genesis Chapter, uh, chapter 11, verse 26. When Terah had lived for 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son, Abram's wife. And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans, to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. 
The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. We turn to the New Testament now, to Galatians, to see the Apostle Paul's assessment of Abraham. So look with me at Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, and I'll start reading from verse 6. Just as Abram believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abram. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abram, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abram, the man of faith. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do give you thanks that you've given us your word. And we come to you now confessing that sometimes we come uh, with hard hearts. And so we pray that you'll soften us now. And we are reminded of the parable that Jesus told about the soils and how some of us here right now may be that path in which your word will just simply bounce off and have no effect whatsoever. We pray for your mercy that that will not be the case. For others of us, your word will be implanted for a while, but it will be uh, on rocky ground and it won't take root. And so we pray, Father, that you will soften that ground, uh, that the seed might be implanted, that it might bear fruit. For others of us, we are bothered and burdened by the cares of this world, the worries, uh, whether it is uh, pressures from our studies or from our parents, uh, whether it is difficulties at school or at work, or whether it is uh, emotional or inner turmoil uh, that rages within or conflicts without. Um, we are burdened by many things, and so we pray, Father, now that you would lift that burden from us, that you'll give us a moment of peace in order that we may hear your word crystal clearly. And so we pray, Father, that we will be like that fourth soil, rich and fertile, that your seed would plant deep in us and it will bear fruit, that it will bear fruit and, bear, uh, and, and increase tenfold, a hundredfold, uh, over and over, that it would bring blessing of new life in Jesus. As we hear your words again today, as we continue on in these foundational chapters, as we gaze upon once again at your glory and in your judgment, your mercy and grace, as we gaze again at our own human condition, we pray that you'll do your work in our lives, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I think human beings are filled with desire. That'd be fair to say, isn't it? We're all filled with some kind of desire, right, for truly good things. Uh, that's how we were made by God. Uh, the human race, right from the beginning of time, uh, has been seeking out the good life. Right? No one deliberately uh, is born to seek out the bad life. We seek to survive and to thrive. Uh, we seek after a sense of recognition, of worth, of achievement. Uh, whether it is, you know, maybe killing the biggest animal out there, right? The wildebeest, right? So now, you know, in school and our workplaces and our relationships, we want to feel safe and we want to feel secure. 
And we also strive, not just for our own personal good life, uh, but if you've been to any Miss Uni uh, USA or uh, Miss Universe contest, what's the, the key question? Uh, how will you achieve world peace, right? Uh, we seek after not just a personal good life, but I think most of us uh, genuinely seek a world without strife, a world where we're united as one people. And we have the Olympic Games, and we have all kinds of pursuits, right, to be able to find that means to be able to unite as one man. Yet our pursuit of the good life always seems to be filled with frustration, isn't it? Uh, unattainable, uh, always ending in disappointment. Uh, we are full of confidence one moment that we can achieve it, but in the next moment we are full of insecurity and despair. We gather people to ourselves to chase the dream, yet we trample on each other to achieve it. Uh, unity and world peace, love for all mankind, it's such lofty, beautiful ideals, but truly unattainable. Right? Not even close to being attainable. And that's why it's crucial that we study and understand Genesis chapter 1 to 11. Because it explains why is it that the world's like this? Why do we have such great ideals and yet such great failures? Why is the world the way it is? And we've seen over these last 11 chapters that I think it really explains the world so well. I think it really gives us a great insight as to the, the state of each individual person as well as the state of humankind. We, it, uh, it begins with entry of sin into God's good will in Genesis 3. Right, the picture of sin shown uh, from multiple angles as we progress on, the escalation of sin from generation to generation. It all begins with the doubting of God's goodness, uh, and then it's fueled uh, by the desire to be the ones who will determine good and evil, uh, what is right and wrong. Like, God doesn't have that right. I want to have that right. And so God is rejected, and He's disobeyed. And from there, sin enters into the human experience, and then we move from jealousy to violence and murder. And it escalates quickly to the point where we saw last week, right, in Genesis 6, God's devastating diagnosis for mankind, that wickedness was great in the world, spreading wide across all people and going down deep within each person. And we've seen as well over the weeks, haven't we, that God's judgment has fallen, a just, moral, and pure response to sin. Uh, but we also see such great love from God as He grieves His wayward children. Right? He doesn't uh, shoot down lightning bolts like some deity from on high, uncaring and, and mean and cruel. He is a loving Father who's grieved by His wayward children. We see God pour out undeserved mercy and grace, even in judgment. None of the judgment we've seen so far has been final and complete. It's always tinged with grace. Today, we're going, to, we, we're going to be given one more insight into the human condition, one more insight into the judgment of God, and I think the best insight into the grace of God as we see the gospel message preached to Abraham in the Old Testament, the clearest message of grace, I think, in the Old Testament. Now, as we read on into Genesis 10, uh, we see that it's a genealogy, don't we, of Noah's children after the flood. Uh, as we heard a little bit in the Bible reading before, if you scan back, you see there's a genealogy of Japheth, Ham, and Shem. Uh, they have children, and then they have children. And you'll recognize the names of these people. Uh, some of them, they become uh, people groups, like the Canaanites, the Jebusites, the Amorites. And you'll also recognize that they become great nations, some of these children, as you'd expect, right? Uh, in a way, this chapter is called the Table of Nations. You see the names like Egypt and Babylon, and Assyria, and so on, right, as part of the children of Noah. 
or grandchildren of Noah. Now, when we get to the end of chapter 10, we read this, right? Chapter 10, verse 32. These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies in their nations. And from these, the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. And we see that Noah's children have been fruitful, right? They've been multiplying and they've been filling the world, right? It's exactly what uh, Adam was told to do back in chapter 1, his mission, his purpose. We see that repeated to Noah back in chapter 9. And it seems that the children of Noah are fulfilling God's purpose for their lives, right? And maybe here it sounds promising that things are going to move forward in a good way. But, that's always a but, isn't it? But then we read on in chapter 11, and we realize straight away that we're given a backstory, right? Chapter 11 is a backstory. Now, how do we know this? Well, have a look at chapter 11, verse 1. Now, the whole world, the whole earth had one language and the same words, right? It's chapter 11, verse 1. The story of chapter 11, verse 1 to 9, is set in a time when all people had the one language and spoke the same words. But back in chapter 10, uh, we had read this, right? The genealogy of Japheth uh, ends with a summary in chapter, in chapter 10, verse 5. Have a look. From these, the coastland people spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans in their nations. Likewise, the end of Ham's genealogy, chapter 10, verse 20. These are the sons of Ham, by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. Same with Shem, chapter 10, 31. These are the sons of Shem, by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. And so in chapter 10, we've got these clans and languages. In chapter 11, verse 1, we have one language, one word, right? Obviously, it's a backstory, isn't it? How did the world go from having people with all one language and the same words as you expect? I mean, they're all Noah and Noah's descendants. How did they go from that to become a world of different people and different languages? That's what the backstory of chapter 11, verse 1 to 9, is about. I'm not sure if you knew that, right? Okay, so what happened? Let's read on, right? The backstory. We'll read verses 1 to 4. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Okay, so what's going on here, right? Well, we see humanity united as one to conspire against God, right? Basically, they're cutting God out of their lives. It begins with them uh, finding a plain in the land of China and wanting to settle there, right? No more uh, filling the world, going out there. Right? They just want to settle down now, right? Time to, to put down roots in our lives. And then they say to one another, let's come together, everyone, and let us use our creative abilities to make bricks and mortar to build ourselves something great. Right, let's build ourselves a city. Let's build ourselves a tower with its top into the heavens. All right, so that's the plan that they come up with. They want to settle down. They want to make their name great, and they want to build something great with a tower that goes into the heavens. Why? Well, two clear reasons are given to us. But the first reason is to fulfill their need for significance, right? their desire for greatness. They want to make their name great, they tell us. They want to be known, recognized, and admired. 
to be great in the eyes of the world. And they'll achieve this uh, with this grandiose plan to build this great city. Right? It'll be a testament to their own creative abilities, right? That's why the detail is there, isn't it? They're able to fashion for themselves bricks and mortar to build this structure, right? Accomplished by their very own hands, the fruit of their own labors. They want all of the glory to go to them. Now, in the city, uh, they also want to build a tower that reaches up into the heavens. Now, it's clear what they're seeking for, aren't they? They, they want to get into the heavens to be like God, uh, in a way, to replace God. If they can reach God, if they can reach the dwelling place of God, then they themselves have become gods, haven't they? If I can build something that reaches into the heavens, then haven't I elevated myself uh, into the place of God? It's the kind of motivation that's driving them. And so we see this city and this tower project uh, is humanity being united right, to put God out of their lives. What's the need for God? I want to be great on my own terms. I want to be God on my own terms. Now, as men and women, they were created in the image of God. They already had a great name. They bore God's name. But they didn't want that, right? They wanted a name for themselves. They wanted recognition and praise that they themselves create and earn. And so they built this grand city. They didn't want God to be in charge, and so they seek to storm the gates of heaven to depose God of his rule and put themselves on the throne. So they build their high tower. And so we see the city and tower building project, a great desire, isn't it, for self-made greatness. And yet we see also such great insecurity. It's a strange mix, isn't it? This grandiose plan of greatness, yet we see such insecurity. And we see this in the second reason, right, for their settling down and their building. This desire for security. They did not want to be dispersed over the face of the earth. Now, on the one hand, this is a clear rejection of God's clear purposes for them, right? To be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But I think there's more to this than just disobeying God's commands. I think it betrays a, a deep-seated um, insecurity in their lives. Because it's so much easier, isn't it, just to stay put to build for yourself a great city and to settle down into a comfortable home with a comfortable job, to live a comfortable life, to be on the move, to go to unknown places. It can feel so unstable, right? so insecure. And many of us here are migrants or international students. I'm sure you know a sense of what that feels like, right? to not have a home, right? to look for one rental after another, for a place to live. Uh, we live in a pretty easy world to be able to move around, but for them, to go out into the big bad world, it would have been very uncomfortable. And so we see humanity, they're united in fear of the future. They're united in fear of the unknown. Having rejected, rejected God, they reject God's purposes for them. Having rejected God, they don't believe that God will be their security. They don't believe that God will provide even as he commands them to fill the earth. They don't believe that he will protect them as he has already promised to even someone like Cain, a murderer. And so out of this strange mix, isn't it, of overconfidence and deep insecurity, humanity unites to conspire against God. At the heart of the human condition, as we've seen, is this desire to decide for ourselves what our lives will be like, and we make a mess of it. We are so confident we can do it, and yet we feel so messed up and insecure as we try. And how does God respond to this? 
How does God respond to this? Well, I think the story is told in such a way that really humiliates humanity. Right? I think it is purposely humiliating uh, to humanity. We see this in verse 5. Right? The Lord had to come down to see the city and the tower. We see it again in verse 7. Right? The Lord says, come, let us go down. Right? And remember what, the human- what humans are trying to do. They're trying to get the tower into the heavens. Yeah, right, right? It's not even close. It's not even close. It's kind of like these giant anthills I found on, on, on YouTube, uh, not YouTube, on Facebook, not Facebook, Google, right? That's the one. They're all over the same people anyway. Um, Google, I Googled it, you know, greatest uh, structures uh, the animal, the, the, uh, the creature kingdom has made, and, and here we go, anthill, three meters tall, even higher than that, I think, maybe about four or five, this one. What an achievement by these little ants. You can imagine them right, seriously busy and building their tiny little ants. This is seriously impressive what they've been able to achieve. That, look at that, go, 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 you know, go ant, right? That's great achievement. But we humans, as we fly by in our planes, uh, we go looking for this awesome structure created by these amazing ants. You'd have to seriously get your binoculars out, right, to really scan for this three, four meter structure, right, that is in the middle of nowhere, right? It'd be like searching, right? You can imagine God doing that, right? Where, where's this tower that's supposedly up in the heavens? Okay, maybe that's a bit too much drama, but, but you can't kind of imagine that, right? What kind of nonsense uh, do these people think they're getting up to? Who are they kidding? And so, having come down, he finally finds this amazing tower that man has built, and he assesses the situation. And he sees clearly that humanity is united, one people with one language, but he sees that they're conspiring to build the city and tower is just the beginning. God knows that they will keep using their God-given abilities, right, to keep building things in rebellion and rejection of God. They will keep finding ways to sin in greater and greater ways. See, the problem with humanity isn't unity itself, right? Human unity isn't the problem. It's what we use our unity for. It's what we're united around. And so we know people gather around, like criminals gather around to form mobs and crews to dominate their, their patch. Citizens unite to form deadly armies, right, that invade other countries. Even churches. People in churches can unite around false teaching and cover up illegal and ungodly behavior. So sadly, we've heard about that in the news recently, haven't we? Unity can be used for God's purposes, or it can be used against God's good purposes. And here on the plains of China, humanity with one language and one voice seek their own greatness and purpose. They unite as one humanity to throw God away. Now, on a grand scale, this is what humanity has done, united in rejection of God. But we also see this play out in much smaller scales all over the place. People united around many different causes, uh, political parties, as we are probably inundated with, right, over the last few weeks and over the next few days, social movements, all kinds of spiritualities, and all manners of philosophies and ideals, all in the search of the good life, all in the search for significance and for security, but all with a common element that we will leave God out of it. You'll leave God out of it, right? We will find our own way in this world to be great and to be safe. He will have no say in what the good life is. 
significance and security has nothing to do with God. We will decide we will secure it for ourselves. That is the human condition. And so finally, we see God judge. And it's a judgment that really is the kind that is, in a way, most good and most needed. And we see that God firstly confuses their speech. Now, He does this really to, to, to make sure that things don't get out of hand, totally out of hand. Right? Uh, this is the, the care and concern of a creator, of a parent, not of a competitor. As if, you know, he was competing against man and he won't let man try and be great. No, it's a concern of a parent. And God isn't worried, right, that humans will usurp him because it's impossible for humans to usurp God. God will always be God whether humanity treats God as God or not. God will always be God. But God has got a concern to prevent his children from going down a hole, a downward spiral that has no end, that it will be ultimately completely destructive. Now, one of the great challenges for all parents, isn't it, is to know how much freedom and how much resources to give to their children. Right? So there are parents here who know what I'm talking about, and there are children here who are not feeling too happy at this moment where this illustration is going, right? And the principle is pretty clear. It's pretty simple. Uh, parents give out freedom. They give out um, you know, opportunities. They give their money, even, uh, uh, in small amounts to start with to see what their children right, will do with it. And as you see our children um, use it, and as you see our children perhaps abuse these freedoms and these resources, then we come down in judgment. We restrict those freedoms and those privileges. We ground them. Right? We confiscate their devices. We take away their pocket money. Right? Not because we are so mean, and I, I'm, I'm speaking now as a parent, it's so scary. Right? You know, 20 years ago, I would have said, you're so mean, now it's, we are so mean. We're not being mean for the sake of being mean, are we? We're restricting those freedoms and those privileges because we know that if we give you even more, your track record will mean that you will do even more destructive things. And so we've got to prevent that for a moment. We do so out of concern to prevent those really bad habits from setting in and forming and to prevent a downward spiral. But if you prove yourselves again, guess what? You get to leave the home again. Um, you meant to laugh at that, right? No, okay. Uh, all right, so can you see that? Like it's, it's a kind of judgment that is, it's, it's from a parent trying to prevent things from getting really bad. The privilege that humanity had was an unrestricted unity, one language, one voice. They were given that privilege to do the work of God, to be able to use their creative abilities to multiply and fulfill and to care for the world and to, to bring the world to become like an Eden-like state, to, to be image bearers of God who will spread the glory of God throughout the world. But instead, they used their unity to settle down in China, to make a name for themselves and to replace God. So God confuses their language. Now, for those of us who've been in a country before where we can't speak the language everyone else is speaking, or we've been in a conversation before where we're seriously left out because they are chatting away in their own language and you can't understand, we know this is a, a very uncomfortable, a very difficult situation to be in, isn't it? To not be able to understand each other. It's a, a judgment that really hits hard. Yet it was necessary for God to do so because he makes it difficult for humanity to escalate Unite in escalating sin. And then God judges by scattering the people. That's the second thing we see him do. He scatters the people. You see, what the people won't do willingly, God will make them do unwillingly, right? He will force them to scatter. 
God's created purpose for humanity is to multiply and to fill the earth. It is God's good purpose that we spread out and care for the world and bring blessing to the world. You see, a good parent punishes their children sometimes by making them do the good things they don't want to do, right? Go and clean your bed. We don't want you to get, uh, you know, ticks all over your body and cockroaches crawling up your nose when you sleep, right? Sometimes we make you do the, the good things you don't want to do in the hope that you'll develop a love and a desire to do it for yourself. And finally, the last act of judgment is that the name that God gives to the city. So it's a funny one here. Humanity had desired, didn't they, to make a name for themselves that was great. But did you hear the name that God gives them instead? He calls the city Babel, which literally means confusion. This is where we get our English word babble or babbling from. So in other words, these are a bunch of babbling idiots. All right? Basically, this is what it means, right? This is, this is a humiliating name for a people who have sought greatness in their own name. Now, as we get to Genesis 11.9, as we get to the end of this section, let's step back for a moment and see where humanity is at. Humanity is determined not to live rightly with God. Right? They've shown that all the way through from Genesis, Genesis 3, determined not to live rightly with God. They desire greatness. Right? They reject God and their God-given and their, their God-given value, their God-given identity, which really is their greatest value. And so they're humbled. They're humbled. They desire security, but they look for it in all the wrong places. And so they become insecure. They desire unity, but also to achieve the wrong purposes, and so they are scattered. The curse of confusion and contradiction and corruption and chaos, they're all consequences of rejecting God and wanting to go life their own way. That's kind of the humanity that we see, isn't it? At the end of chapter 11, verse 9. Now, last week after the flood, we heard God's utter commitment to his creation, didn't we? Such undeserved grace in chapter 9. Now, here after Babel, we see it again. This time, God's word of grace reveals the Christian gospel in its clearest Old Testament form. After Babel, we get a, another genealogy. Right? The line of Shem is recorded for us from verse 10 onwards, chapter 11, verse 10 onwards. Now, remember, right, genealogies, they signal... Uh, the grace of God in allowing life to continue on, right? It's not an end to humanity yet, but it also signals to us, whenever you read a genealogy in the Bible, it signals to us to keep asking the question, is this the promised line, right? Is this the promised line? Will it be through this line, this genealogy, uh, where the serpent-crushing, sin-defeating offspring would come from? Remember Genesis 3.15, the promise that an offspring of the woman would one day defeat the serpent, crush sin to death? Well, genealogies makes us wonder, is this the promised line, right, that this offspring will come? Now, at the end of chapter 11, we are introduced to Abram, whose wife Sarai is barren. And then chapter 12, verse 1. Let's have a look. Chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. 
Now, the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 3, verse 8, says that these promises that God made to Abraham, or Abram, as it's called here in the story, is the gospel being preached. Now, the gospel being preached. These are the promises that ground all that God does in the rest of the Old Testament, that Jesus fulfills in the New Testament. Now, we could spend many hours in these three verses and how they are fulfilled beginning in chapter 12, verse 4 of Genesis, all the way to Revelation 22, right? Um, but we're just going to look at a couple of key points, just two key points. Firstly, these promises show us the greatness of God's grace, right? It shows us the greatness of God's grace. Just as we saw God's one-sided covenant that He made with Noah last week, so we see again God's one-sided and complete initiative in making these blessings, giving these blessings to Abram. The Lord God calls out this one man, Abram, and there's nothing special about this man whatsoever. At least with Noah, he was righteous and blameless in his generation who walked with God. There is no backstory to Abram. He's just a random dude, right, from a place called Ur. Ur? Ur, right? Exactly, right? In the land of Chaldea, like, wait, and he was someone, as we are told later on in Joshua, who worshipped other gods. Like him and his father, his family, were idol worshippers in a pagan land. Nobody from nowhere worshipping another god. That's who Abram was. To this pagan god worshipping nobody, God calls and says, I will show, I will make, I will bless, I will give, I will bless. Can you hear that, right? It's what God will do. Entirely to do with God. I chose you, and I will do all this for you, and I will do all of this to the world through you. That's what God's saying. This is the grace that we see in these three verses. Now, reading up to this point in human history, Genesis 1 to 11, there's really no good reason why God should do this. Right? There's no real good reason. There's no reason that humanity deserves. And that's why it's grace, because God does it anyway. The gospel of God is and always will be a message of God's great grace. And whatever else we remember or don't remember about this sermon and about Genesis 12, 1 to 3, remember that the gospel is always a message of grace in the face of human sinfulness and wickedness. Secondly, these promises show us that God will reverse the curse that humanity's sin has caused. It's the reversal of curse. Humanity strives for greatness and for significance, for value, but have failed to achieve it because we can never be truly great and significant without God. But then God says to Abram, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. Humanity strives after security, but we fail to achieve it because only God can secure us. So God promises Abram, I will bring you to a land. Right? As we figure out later on, it's the promised land, a place of provision and peace that hearts forward to heaven, the final place of peace. Humanity strives after unity, but uses that unity to rebel against God, which results in all of these curses. But God promises Abram, through you, the families of the earth will be blessed. The world one day will unite around Abram in such a way that will result in blessings, not curses. Now, can you see why this is the gospel preached in the Old Testament? 
Can you see how all these promises come to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the offspring of Abraham, the serpent-crushing, sin-defeating seed of the woman? Can you see it? Well, if you can't see it, well, let me explain to you, right? Let me, let me expand a little bit uh, uh, how we see this, right? Let's talk firstly about the significance and greatness issue. You see, Jesus is the great descendant of Abraham, right? He's the great descendant of Abraham. There is none greater than Jesus. He is the eternally beloved Son of God, the almighty King of kings and Lord of lords, the Savior, the only name in heaven and on earth through whom sinners can be saved, now, to be a Christian is literally to bear Christ's name, right? That's what Christian means. Christian is to bear Christ's name. And that's what it means to truly be great, to bear the name of Christ, to share in the glory of Christ, to be loved by God, to be children of God, promise inheritance in God's eternal kingdom. In Christ, God gives us greatness, we will never find our significance and value anywhere else but in Christ. And so the message is don't, don't, don't try and seek for and chase after greatness for yourself. Right? To, to, seek, to, to stop striving to make a name for yourself in this world. And the call for us is to come to Christ. Let the Son of God give you His name. Let Him give you His greatness for there is none better. There's none better. Now let's talk security. Security. Jesus Christ secures believers now and forever. Right? We're no longer scattered people, wanderers in the earth uh, without a name, without a home. Jesus is our home. He is our peace. He is our resting place. In Him, we find rest for our anxious and our burdened souls. Jesus is the shepherd who has gathered His lost sheep back into God's fold. He's the Lamb of God who secures us our place in the presence of God. We've been gathered, uh, and whenever we meet together as a church, and later on we're going to share in the Lord's Supper together uh, to express our unity that we have in Christ, it reminds us, doesn't it? Whenever we meet each week like this, that we are the gathered people of God, united. We're no longer scattered people. And so we are, we're able then to be able to face the insecurities that we often feel. We can overcome them even. We can overcome the unbelief that denies the security that God gives us in Jesus Christ, that drives us to find things in this life to secure us. Security, and I will, will say it over and over again, isn't found in the things of this world. It's not found in money, in education, in living long and healthy lives. It isn't found in property or in career or in relationships. The towers that we build to lean on, to secure us, they seem to, to work for a little while, but they will always fail us. They were me never meant to be our security in this life. Right? Our, the, the world is, is erecting tower after tower over the centuries. All these philosophies and ideas right, to secure ourselves and our identity and our purpose but they will always fail. Time will show, right, that every human ideal will fail. Secure in Christ, grounded in God-given identity and God-given purpose, we can face the challenges of life differently. We don't need to fear what the future holds. Secure in Christ, we can give ourselves to living for Christ, 
and serving Christ. We can be courageous. We can make the sacrifices. We can do life without FOMO, but we're missing out. And finally, we can see what true flourishing and blessed unity looks like. Right? Let's talk about unity. <clears throat> to a scattered humanity under curse, blessing and unity is given to us through Jesus, Abraham's offspring, right? the fulfillment of all of God's promises. So finally, Galatians 3. It's in your outline there as well. Know then that this those of faith who are the sons of Abraham, and the Scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you, in you, shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. You see, in a world of God denying unity that results in curses, God unites us by faith in Christ, the great son of Abraham. All who trust in Abraham's offspring in Christ uh, becomes Abraham's family. Now, there's a beautiful picture of this unity that we have in Christ. We'll look at in a couple of weeks' time in Acts chapter 2, right, where the curses of Babel are reversed as, as at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit is given to believers. Even though they speak all in different languages, they understand each other. We'll look at that in Acts chapter 2. And it for, it's a foreshadowing of what we already seen in Revelation just a few months back. Revelation 7, isn't it? Where all believers... In this vision of heaven, the new creation, a great multitude of people from every nation and every tribe and every people group and every language are gathered around the throne of God the Father and the Lamb. And in one voice, they worship the Father and the Son. We see unity done right, right? in worship, in blessed glory. Now, as human beings... We desire good things. We were created for that, after all. It is the right thing to desire the good life. We were created in the image of God to enjoy God's good world, to seek after God's good purposes. But in our sin and rebellion, we have created our own version of what the good life is that has no God in it. We want to make our own name great. We want to secure our own futures. And so we unite in many ways, but we take God out of the picture. Genesis 1 to 11 shows us the confusion, the contradictions, the chaos that results from this. We live in a world that's cursed by sin. Yet we have seen, haven't we, that God's judgment is full of grace. It's a judgment that limits our sin, that prevents us from truly blowing out our own lives and blowing up our own lives. But God's grace is even greater than that. He does everything that He needs to do to reverse the curses of our sin. He does everything to give us the blessings that He wants to give us. God preached the gospel to Abraham. God fulfilled the gospel through Jesus Christ. This is where the good life is to be found. Are you coming to Jesus for that? Or are you going somewhere else? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we give you great thanks for your word. We thank you for the way it truly speaks into the reality of this world. That in its world, we see such goodness that there is a good life to be sought, a good life to be lived, a place where the search for value and significance and greatness is a good thing, as well as the desire for security, as well as for a unity 
where we all truly do love one another are at one and at peace. Yet it's so clear that we fail to achieve this. We've always failed as humanity to achieve this. And as your word has shown us, it's because we have sought significance and security and oneness without you. And so, Father, we pray that you will open our ears and our hearts to your word this morning to be able to see that the good life can only be found in Christ. We thank you for your amazing grace, firstly seen in your judgment that prevents our escalating sin and going down a hole that we can never climb out of. But most importantly, we see your grace in the gospel preached to Abraham, the promise of blessing that reverses all the curses. We thank you that it has been fulfilled in the Lord Jesus, that in him we rediscover what our value is, that we are your children by faith in Jesus, that in him we are secured now and forever, that in him we're united as one, in worship, in living out your purposes, the good life. And so, Father, we pray that you'll help us. We are bombarded every single day uh, by all kinds of messages that ask us, that calls us, that even forces us to chase after our own reality, our own goodness, our own good life. Please help us to hear your voice through all of this chaos. Please help us to find blessing. For this we pray in Jesus' name.